Amen. Be seated, please. Well, these hymns were well sung. Well, we'll turn now to Luke chapter 9 and think about uh, the first nine verses. Well, I, I don't know how you see your life. Um, but I want to say to you that you, if you're a Christian, you ought to see it as quite astonishing. Again, maybe you have a, a negative perspective on your life. But um, if you're a child of God, and if you're in Christ, you have quite a significant and an astonishing life. And I say that because if you're a Christian, it means that in your life, you are carrying out the work of Jesus. It doesn't matter how you occupy yourself. It doesn't matter what your particular job might be. The fact is that as a Christian, you are charged with carrying on the work of Jesus. And that is the great purpose of your life. When the Lord Jesus comes into the world, he says, and it's found in Luke 4.18 where he's in the synagogue and he's quoting from the Holy Scriptures and he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news. And in Greek, that's the word euangelizo. So you've anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And that proclaim is the Greek word caruso. So when Jesus comes into the world, that's what he's come to do. He's come to announce good news. And he's come to proclaim the kingdom, proclaim liberty to captives. And when our Lord speaks here in our passage uh, to the apostles and by implication to the church and by implication to us and to you and to me, the Lord Jesus says, go and proclaim the kingdom of God, verse 2. And there he uses the word caruso. Go and preach the gospel. Go and preach the kingdom of God. And in verse 6 of our passage, it says that they did just that, and they went uh, preaching the gospel. And that's the word euangelizo. That's the word that means announce the good news. We get evangelism from that. And so... Jesus comes preaching and announcing the good news. And he says to them, and he says to you and to me, go and preach the word and announce the good news. So we're carrying on, you see, the work of the Lord Jesus. And we ought to realize right away then that our lives are lives of extraordinary significance. And what the Lord Jesus says here infuses significance into your life. We're not talking now about your particular calling, your particular vocation, what your job is. We're just talking about the fact that your life carries on the work of Jesus, and so it is a life of tremendous significance. And so your life is infused with purpose and with dignity and with importance and with usefulness. 
You may not be as gifted as someone else. We may not be as talented as other people, but we have lives of significance and importance and in usefulness because each of us is carrying on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I was talking with a a young man at the gym the other day, and I asked him what he did, and he told me, and and, uh, then he added that he... Uh, had just applied to a job at McMaster in a department where they're trying to, they're working on a cure for cancer. So I said, well, I, you know, I hope you get that job. That would be a great privilege. And uh, he says, yes. He says, I want to be involved in, and these are the words he used, I want to be involved in and a part of something bigger than myself. I thought... Oh, he's, he sounds like a Christian. So I asked him. I said, that's, a, that's the kind of thing a Christian would say. He says, oh, I'm a Christian. And he says, I want to be involved in something bigger than myself. And you see, that's fabulous because a Christian, by definition, is involved in something bigger than himself. If you're a Christian, you're involved today, as we speak, in something bigger than yourself. You are involved in some great and grand enterprise. You're involved in a work that spans generations and transcends earthly boundaries. Your mindset is that you're involved in something significant. You're involved in something much, much bigger than yourself. You're involved in something much bigger than this church. Our church is involved... Together we're involved in something grand and something glorious because individually and as a church we're carrying on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to do something good for people. He wants to find a cure for cancer. That's something good. And we want to do the greatest good for people. We want to introduce them to Christ. There's no better good we can do for people around us. Nothing better we can do for our generation. So you see, Jesus will later say in John, As the Father has sent me, I send you. And the Father sends him to go and and preach the kingdom. And go and announce the good news. And when he sends us, he sends us in the same way. Go and, and preach the kingdom. Go and announce the good news. That's what we are to do. So we are sent. And we want to think for a few minutes about this this sending out, about which we read in verses 1 to 9. And I want to show you three elements of of this teaching that we find here in verses 1 to 9. And we'll begin with the initiative of God. We'll get to the commission of God and the provision of God, but we'll begin with the initiative. And, and this is something that, well, it should make you excited. It should move you to praise. It should stir adoration within you, because when we think about the initiative of God, it's a sovereign and a gracious initiative. It is a sovereign initiative. You see, God is not at our beck and call. You don't snap your fingers and God jumps. When God acts, he acts at his own behest. Ephesians 1 tells us that God acts according to the purpose of his will. 
not yours and not mine, no one else's. He acts according to the purpose of his own will, verse 5 of Ephesians 1. Verse 6 says that he acts according to the riches of his grace. He acts in such a way as is consistent with the riches of his grace. That's how God acts. That's what drives him. He, he works and he acts sovereignly. Philippians 2.13 says that he acts according to his own will, according to his good pleasure. He does what pleases him. He doesn't do what pleases other people. Certainly not what pleases sinful creatures. No, no. He does what he wants. He's a sovereign God and he acts sovereignly. And so when God acts, it's a sovereign initiative. It is his choice. And the Bible says that the work of salvation is his choice. Second Timothy says that we are saved not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ before the ages began. See, as I'm saying, the Bible says that the work of salvation is God's choice. He gives us grace, and he gives us grace before the world began, before time was. And at that point, he gives us grace. And so God... For God, the work of salvation is His choice. The Bible also says that the, the proclamation of salvation is His choice. Luke tells us that Jesus is the one who takes the initiative when it comes to getting the, the people together and sending them out so that they might proclaim the work of salvation which He is, uh, in a, not too long a time, about to accomplish. This is his idea. It's the Lord Jesus who calls them, gathers them together. It's the Lord Jesus who gives them the order. He gives them their marching instructions. It's the Lord Jesus who empowers them to fulfill the responsibility that he's giving them. It's the Lord Jesus who gives the grace that is needed so that they might fulfill this mission that is given to them. The Bible says that the work of salvation is his choice, and also that the proclamation is his choice, his work. He's the founder. He's the source of all of this. Now, if you Google, founder of modern missions, you know who comes up? William Carey. So you Google, founder of modern missions, the first thing is William Carey should be Jesus. But they haven't read this passage. Google's not interested in being biblically accurate. It should be Jesus. People talk, and we talk about Jim Elliot, who died uh, a martyr's death in 1956. And, and when we think about that, we also think almost immediately about the, the surge in missionary activity that followed about the crowds of people who volunteered and took up missions and became long-term missionaries as a result of this extraordinary story of these five missionaries who were, who were martyred. And what an impact they had. We talk about the things that people do, significant individuals and significant events. And we talk about the things that we're trying to do. You know, we're, we're trying to evangelize. We're, Witnessing to people, and we pray about them on Wednesday nights. We, we talk about uh, distributing cards 
at Easter and Christmas uh, into the neighborhood because we want them to know something about Christ and these efforts and steadfast youth and the efforts to reach some young people. We talk about these things. But you know what? None of this happens without Jesus. This is where it begins in our passage. He sends the apostles out, and they, by implication, uh, they're representing the church, and, and he's sending the church out. We'll read more and more about that as you read through the New Testament. And the church is being sent out. The church is the light, and we are missionaries, and we are those who go and tell people about Christ. This stems from the words and the work of Jesus. He calls them. And he gave them power and authority. And he sends them. You, know, you see, this is a, a sovereign initiative. And then it's a gracious initiative. You see, the problem is not that people don't have initiative. They have more than enough initiative. The problem is that their initiative is, well, it's wicked. You read about that initiative in, in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 tells us that the nations rage. They have an agenda and it's driven by their rage against God. And the psalm says they plot against the Lord. And they say, let us break his chains so that we can be free. That's their agenda. It's a wicked agenda. And so they take initiative. And what do they do? Well, they, they come up with all kinds of things, all kinds of ideas, all kinds of lifestyles, all kinds of philosophies, and so they come up with Hinduism, with its 300 million gods. How perverse is that? With communism. Winston Churchill said that capitalism is the unequal sharing of blessing and communism, the equal sharing of misery. They come up with hedonism, where people just live to have pleasure. That's the thing. That's what drives us. That's what life's about. Just having enjoyment and living for pleasure. And that's a fairly dominant emphasis in philosophy, especially in the West. And then there's atheism. Ah, there is no God. And there's secularism, which is that you ought to live as if there's no God. And that is surely dominant in our country. And so on, and so on, and so on. Uh, they came up with this. God didn't start this. Who came up with all these godless perspectives? Well, uh, mankind did. They rage against God and they try to escape his, his, his rules. And God warns them that it's all going to lead to judgment. It's all going to lead to wrath. And you better kiss the sun lest he be angry. But God's initiative, all these other initiatives are perverse. God's initiative is full of grace. Because what does God do? Well, he chooses a people. He gives those people to his son. He sends his son into the world. He sends his son as one of them. He sends his son to die on a cross. And he sends his son to die on a cross representing them in their room instead. As their substitute, he sends his son. This is all by the initiative of God. It's not a plan we came up with. We want, by nature, nothing to do with God. But he starts this. He gets the ball rolling, as it were. It's a gracious initiative. And then, when the work is done, he sends his spirit. 
And the Spirit will stir the people so that they'll go and tell others about the work that Jesus has accomplished. And, and when they hear it, the Spirit, He's sent to go and enlighten them and open their ears so that they'll see and hear, because by nature they won't. And so the Spirit comes to make them alive, because they're all dead spiritually. And so God planned this, that the Spirit would do this. And so there'd be a great army raised. Remember Ezekiel 37. There's just dead, dry bones. Ah, but the Spirit works and raises these people from the dead as they believe the gospel, and they become this great army. The Church of Christ going into all the world, they now announcing the good news and preaching the kingdom. This is the initiative of God. It's absolutely astounding. Sovereign, gracious initiative. How do you respond to this? Well, you ought to respond with humility, because what do we have that we haven't received? We have nothing. We have nothing to boast about. The only thing we bring to the table of life is our sin. And that's perverse and that's humiliating. We have nothing to boast about. Salvation is given to us. The work we have, you know, the work we're carrying on, that's given to us. The desire to come to Christ and the desire to now serve Christ, that's given to us. The ability to actually serve Him, that's given to us. God is at work in us to will and to do of His good pleasure. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. So we've got nothing to boast about. And so the first response when we think about God's initiative is humility. And then also praise. That's a second response. How thankful we ought to be that we're saved. And how thankful we ought to be that we're servants. And whatever else you and I are, we're servants. We get to serve God. We're privileged to live a life of service to God. We're privileged to carry on the work. We're privileged that Jesus says to us, Go. Go make disciples. Go be a witness. Go shine your light. Go minister to the saints. Who are we to do that grand and glorious work? Ah, but God is gracious and He condescends and He uses uses people like us. So yeah, we're, we're full of praise that we get to be saved and go to heaven and we get to serve whilst we're on earth. That's the initiative of God. Now secondly, the commission of God. The commission of God. I want to ask two questions. The first question is, is what must the church do? And the second question is, uh, how does the church do it? What must the church do? What kind of commission has the Lord Jesus given to us? What responsibility has he placed on our, on our um, table? Well, first of all, we're to preach. We're to preach. You look at verse 1 and verse 6. So preach the gospel, preach the kingdom, go and announce the good news to everybody around. And so that was true for the apostles, it's true for the early church, you watch them do it in the book of Acts. And it's true for the church in every generation. You read about them doing it in every generation. And it's true for us, true for you, true for me. Go and preach. Tell them the good news. Announce what Jesus has done. Let them know that there's hope. Let them know that there's life. They're dead in sin. Tell them about life. They're without hope and without God in the world. Tell them that God will give them hope. And some of us, 
we'll do it formally. You know, we'll, we'll stand and preach and try to do what I'm trying to do right now. And we'll formally preach the word. Paul talks about this in 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. And he says, I charge you, he's talking to Timothy as a, as a young pastor, he's saying, I charge you before God and before Christ. Your solemn responsibility is to preach the word. You go and do that. He charges them. And of himself, he says, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. And that's, that's the word caruso that we told you about earlier. It's usually translated preach in the, in the New Testament. And some people then will do this formally. Others will do it informally. They will announce the good news in an informal way. We read about this in Acts, Acts chapter 8, verse 4. It says, those who are scattered, now they're in Jerusalem, you see, and they're scattered. Why are they scattered? Well, they're scattered because people are persecuting them. And it's not wrong to try and be safe. So they, they, they leave, and they're scattered. Ah, but God has a purpose in it all. He scatters them to the end that they will go about. And the text says, they were scattered, and they went about preaching the word. And that's the word, euangelizo. They went about, and these are not... Uh, ministers and elders and so forth. These are just regular Christians, and off they go, and they scatter, and wherever they go, they're telling people about Christ. They're announcing the good news. That's the responsibility of the church. That's its fundamental purpose. That's its raison d'etre in this world. We tell people about Christ. We announce the good news, and they preach Christ and Him crucified. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, when I came to you, he says, I determined, oh, this, was a, this was a conviction, I would know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. And of course, he talked about all kinds of other things. But he says, my grand purpose, and my great message, I preach Christ and Him crucified to you. That's the message we have. Yeah, we don't... Uh, Oh, dear, there's so many things that the church today is preaching that is, to one degree or another, distant from the fundamental purpose it has in this world. But when we formed, thank God He led us to Ephesians 3.8. What's our job? Well, our job is to, you know, we're surrounded by by people who are dead in sin. We're surrounded by people who sit in darkness. Some of them are family members, and most of them are out there in the world. And our job is to point them to the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's our job. That's, that's what we do. And that's what Paul did. Read about uh, Acts 26, verses 22 and 23. Paul is standing before Agrippa. Now, maybe this week you'll stand before someone else. Maybe this week you'll rub shoulders with some unbeliever and you'll have an opportunity to point them to something. Well, you want to do what Paul did. Paul said, I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And so 
He tells them about Christ. You read through the book of Acts. What do they preach? They preach Christ and Him crucified. They preach the living Christ. And that's what our responsibility is as Christians, still to this day and always throughout our days. It's always and only about Christ. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, where he summarizes the gospel, he says, for what I received, I passed on to you. He's a servant. He's a, he's a waiter in the restaurant. And he doesn't bring, I think you need to eat this, and I'll choose it. No, no. He just passes along what he's received and then gives it to you. And that's our responsibility as Christians. Paul says, I, what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's my job. And that's what I do, He says. And I'm here to tell you then, not about the myriad of other things about which I know and about which I may have you know, strong convictions, but I tell you about Christ. That's the thing. And so, we follow suit. And we must continue to prioritize preaching as a congregation. And hopefully when some of the older ones amongst us, you know, we're dead and buried, the younger ones are carrying on the same thing. They've been saved by grace and commissioned to announce the good news and preach the kingdom and have those priorities. We want to prioritize that as a congregation and we prioritize the raising up of people to preach the gospel. And we must keep praying for God to raise up a generation of preachers who are mighty in the Scriptures and filled with the Spirit. We must continue to do what we can to support uh, Toronto Baptist Seminary. We must continue to, oh, to encourage young preachers. Why, we, why do we have young men come and, and preach here? Well, because we're praying. And they may well be the answer. And we want to encourage. We want to help. I remember Pastor Payne encouraging me when I, I preached my first sermon. He sat me down in his study. He says, well, he says, that was a valiant effort. And then he just kind of, you know, helped me to gain some level of proficiency. Well, we're supposed to do the same thing. If this is, if this is what the, the Lord Jesus says we're to do as a church, well, you know, let's help them. Let's pray for preachers and pray for, for God to raise them up and let's give them opportunities and help them along the way. And then we, you know, we announce the good news. We don't just say, well, God, raise up people who can do our work for us. No, no, God, raise up preachers and, and God, help us to announce the good news. Help us to be prepared. Help us to go and, and tell other people. And, you, you know, you want to be prepared for that. It's not going to just happen. I... Earlier this week, I wasn't prepared. I was walking down Young Street, and a Muslim came to me, stopped me, and, and he gave me this. He gave me this booklet, Islam, Balancing Life and Beyond. It's full of nonsense. And, and if you look at the chapter headings, the little chapter headings, there's nothing. There's nothing about love, and there's nothing about what God has done to save us. It's all about what, what you need to do. There's not a word of grace in here. And there's not a word of, of uh, gracious salvation and what God has done. It's just, it's just tragic. And I, I said to him, 
I took his book because he said, would you just take this? And I took it and I thought, and I said, oh, goodness, I wish I had something to give to you. And I'd be meaning, I have a backpack that's carrying my, and I, I'd be meaning to put ultimate questions in there. You know, the, you know what they say about, you know, intentions and, and I meant to do it and I didn't, I, f- I forgot. So I tried to explain to him what the gospel is and he walked away. I thought, oh man, maybe, maybe if I had given him something, if I had ultimate questions and, and given, maybe he doesn't want to talk to me, maybe for whatever reason, but maybe if he had taken that home. Because, you know, we want to do this. We want to let them know. We want to announce the good news. The man who believes that, I want to tell him that there's a Savior and that the work's been done. I want to tell him that. And uh, So next time, I'm... I'm going to get those ultimate questions and get you some so that you and I can be prepared. And we want to, we've got to preach. The second thing we have to do is we have to heal. You see that in verse 2, and you see that in verse 6. We have to heal. Well, the apostles went and they preached and they healed. And, and they healed, and it was extraordinary because Peter walks by, and his shadow falls on someone. You know, you, you walk by, and your shadow falls on someone. And when that happened, you read about this in, in Acts chapter 5, verse 15, that person was healed. It's astounding. And then Paul, uh, Paul was maybe had an handkerchief or, or an apron of some sort, and, and if the handkerchief or apron had touched his skin, and then they went and they put it on someone else who was sick, they'd be healed. Absolutely astounding. Now, we have to understand that those healings were not just for healing purposes. Those healings were to authenticate the word, to authenticate the message. They were what the Bible calls signs of an apostle. I'll just give you two verses. 2 Corinthians 12, 12 says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience with signs and wonders and mighty works. And then Hebrews 2.4, the writer there says that the gospel message, which was first declared by the Lord and is attested to us by those who heard, while God, now listen to this, God himself bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. So New Testament miracles were there to authenticate the message of the apostles. It's God saying, through these weak men, I'm doing extraordinary things to show you that what they preach to you is actually true. Because they can't do this. And I'm doing it through them to show, to show that the message is the message I've given them. That's the purpose of it. And today we don't... Uh, you know, God still does miracles today. Every, every one of you is a, who's a Christian is a living, walking, breathing miracle. God made you alive. He may not have healed you. He may not have... You know, I've always wanted to be tall so I could be a power forward in the NBA, but God, you know, hadn't done that miracle, but he made me alive spiritually. That's what he did. That's a better miracle. Well, God does miracles today, but, and and sometimes he heals people, doesn't he? Sometimes, well, we pray. Sometimes he doesn't, sometimes he doesn't. That's his choice. But we, we don't have the gift of miracles. We don't have the gift of healing and We don't need it because 
Well, we have the complete revelation of God. So how do we continue this? How do we continue on what the Lord Jesus had them do? Well, we can't do miracles, but... But you know, if I'm, if I'm William Wilberforce, I can free the slaves. I can do good. I can't, uh, you know, say, stand up and walk. I can't do that, but I can, I can remove their chains. I can work my whole life to free slaves if I'm William Wilberforce. If I'm that young man I told you about, I can go and apply for a job where I can do good to people. Maybe I can be a small link in this chain that leads to a cure. Maybe I can do that. Um, or maybe if I'm some of you, I can, I can bake a meal or cook a, cook a meal. You bake cookies and you cook food. So I could do that and I could deliver it to people. And maybe you say, well, I don't think I like what you cook, but that's okay. I'm trying to do something nice. Right? I'm trying to do good. And many of you do it and, well, you know, God bless you. So you can't make miracles, but you can, you can do deeds of kindness. If I'm, if I'm you know, the, the Providence Board, I can, I can send a check to, to the Atwell Center. I can send a check to, this is what you're doing as a church. You're sending a check to maybe a homeless shelter, to Houston Street. Well, that's, that's carrying on this kind of thing. Now, the thing to remember is that Wilberforce always understood the priorities the gospel first, that's the main thing, and then we also help practically. So Wilberforce always, always, well, even as he's fighting to free the slaves, his first priority always is to win souls to Christ. He's always, he was witnessing to everything that moved. He's, he's in Parliament in England. He's a famous politician, but he's always witnessing to people. And in fact, after he died, they found amongst his papers uh, a, a sheet that had, uh, I forget now whether he called it starters or launchers. I think it was launchers. And what that was was a, a list of, of ideas. Because he was really a very social kind of guy, a, a very friendly man, and, and always chatting and talking, and people always over at his house, and he's going here, there, and everywhere, and chatting. And then he had what he called launchers. And what this was ideas as to how he could turn the conversation in the direction of the gospel. Because he's talking about all kinds of stuff with all kinds of people, and how can I turn this? Well, maybe I say this. So he's got a list of these launchers. This will launch us in the direction of, of this, of announcing the good news. How do I get the conversation around to Calvary? Because he knew that that's the big thing. Now, obviously, we do good to people. First John says, First John 3, But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brothers in need and yet closes his heart against them, how does the love of God abide in him? And so, little children, let us not love in word and, and talk, but in deed and truth. So, yes, we do good to people. But we remember the great priority, which is to point them to Christ. Well, I need to rush on. This is the answer to... So what do, does the church do? Well, they, we preach and heal. How does the church do it? Well, with a sense of urgency. With a sense of urgency. In verses 3 and 4, we have these instructions about how they're supposed to go out. Well, this isn't a, a paradigm for all missions and all evangelistic activity. This is uh, for uh, this particular sending off of the apostles. 
And uh, one writer says, the simplest explanation, because why does the Lord give them these instructions? Well, the simplest explanation is that it's meant to encourage them to travel light, without encumbrance, living in complete dependence on God. And while the principle is universal, the details are meant specifically for the mission of the Twelve. The disciples were sent out in a hurry. The work of the gospel messenger is an urgent one. So there's an urgency about this. Go, don't take two tunics, just take one. Just take what you need, and off you go. Independence on me. And off you go. So there's an urgency about this responsibility that you and I have. So, you know, go quickly and do steadfast you. Don't say, well, you know, you know, at some point, let's think about it. Form a commission, and a royal commission, and just ponder it for some months. No, go and do something. Go and get the message out. So go and tell that, that cashier that you talk to every week about anything and everything. Well, go and tell them about, about Christ, because, you know, they might die before the week is through. So there's an urgency about this. So go with a, with, with a sense of urgency. Go with an attitude of trust. With an attitude of trust. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, when he's talking about his ministry, he says, he says I, I feel this profound sense of insufficiency. Well, for sure. We are not sufficient for the tasks to which God calls us. The apostles were not sufficient for the commission given to them. The church is not sufficient for the responsibility that is placed at its feet. But thank God the Lord Jesus says to them, I give you power and authority. I give you authority. You go in my name. In my name you go. And so you and I announce to the world in which we live that there is no other way to God except Jesus Christ. And a, a billion Hindus will go to hell if they don't believe in Christ. You say, how arrogant is that? Well, you know, I'm not saying that on my authority. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And how are we conceivably to see any results? How can you talk to dead people and expect them to stand up? Well, because he gives authority and power. Because when Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, he not only says the words, but he gives the power so that Lazarus, who was dead, stands up and walks out. He no longer stinketh, as the old King James says. Power of God. And so when we speak and when we call people to Christ, you know, sometimes they come. And who gets the glory? Well, Jesus gets the glory because he gives the power. He gives power and authority. And we trust in the Lord Jesus then as we go about our work. Oh, but we have terrible opposition. We have satanic opposition. Well, that's okay. Power and authority is given to us because... Jesus says, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. I will build my church. Through you, you'll preach, you'll announce the good news, you'll do good in the world, and through the, the gospel, I'll, I'll build the church, and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. And perhaps a better translation is, the gates of hell cannot resist the inroads that the church will make. They can stop the progress. Now, we feel really, really weak. You know, we're a small church. You think, what impact can we have in the world? Well, we have power and authority given to us. And, well, the devil will attack us. The devil will tempt us. The devil will turn his guns on us and fire his fiery darts at us. And perhaps as a church, we felt a measure of that in these days. 
But that's okay. James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Why is that? Because we're so tough? No, it's because Jesus has all power and authority. And we're his representatives. And we're empowered by him to do the work he gives to us. And so how do we go about this work of preaching and healing? Preaching and doing good. How do we go about it? Well, with a sense of urgency and with an attitude of trust. And lastly, with an awareness of rejection. Because if we, if we give the gospel, there are going to be those who will reject it. Whatever house you enter, verse 4, stay there and from there depart. And whenever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Oh, you see, there will be people who will walk away. You'll tell them, you'll show them the love of Christ. You'll tell them about the love of Christ. You'll present the gospel as clearly as you possibly can, and then they'll just turn away. Well, that Muslim fellow, you know, he just went, he just went like that. I just don't want this. And he walked away. That's very sad. And, and we've had people like that in our lives, haven't we, who've heard the gospel and they walk away. They just don't want to have anything to do with it. Oh, that's fine for you. But it's not for me. Oh yeah, it is exactly for you. But it's sad, isn't it? And, and Jesus says, well, shake the dust off your feet. And what does that mean? Well, as one writer says, this is a formal act of separation, leaving that town or person to the judgment it deserves for rejecting the gospel. And you can read about that in, later on in Luke 10, verses 13 to 15. Acts 18, verse 6, Paul is talking to Jews in Corinth, and he's telling them about the gospel. And... Verse 6 says, And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. And we don't, we don't shake our feet off, shake the, the dust off our feet, but uh, you know, the reality is that people will reject, and it's sad and it's tragic. And there's a sense in, look, in which, you know, if, if they reject, their blood is on their own head. Have it your way. I plead for you. My arms are wide open. We're, we're ready to, to talk. And, but if you're going to reject, well, what can I do? Blood is on your own head. And if you're not a Christian today, that's a terrible state to be in. If you keep rejecting the gospel, your blood's going to be on your head. The Christians told you. Your parents told you. Christians wept over you. Christians prayed for you. Christians pled with you. And still you turn away. It'll be your fault when you fall into hell. And we plead with you again, young or old, come to Christ. Don't die in your sin. The blame will be yours. come to Christ, you'll be saved. And you know, if you're a Christian, make sure that if people walk away, let them, let the blood be on their heads. Make sure the blood isn't on your hands because you didn't tell them. Spurgeon said, if they must go to hell, let them go over my dead body. 
Let them go while I cling to their legs, pleading with them. So make sure there's no blood on your hands. Make sure you've spoken. Make sure you've told them. Nineteen eighty. When did John Lennon die? I had purposed I was going to write him a letter because he had a song called Give Me Some Truth. And I thought, okay, I'll do it. I was going to write him, and I, and I never did. And then I walked into a store on Westmount Road in Kitchener or Waterloo, and I, I saw the announcement. Lennon's been shot dead. My first thought was, you didn't write him. You don't want that. I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not plagued with that. Psychologically damaged because of it, just so you know. But, but I, I'll never forget it. Make sure that their blood isn't on your hands. Well, that's the commission of God. Lastly, the provision. Well, the provision is Jesus. That's very clear. And in this, this last section here, you, we come across Herod. Herod the Tetrarch. And um, he's a... He's a terrible man. His, his father was Herod the Great, and Herod the Great had sought to kill the Lord Jesus while the Lord was still a baby. And, and this Herod would be involved in the murder of John the Baptist and the murder of the Lord. And here he gives, him, he gives voice to the most important question of all, which is, who is this? He's, he's hearing about this Jesus. It's not John, because can you imagine saying, John, I beheaded. That's what he says. So who is this? Well, you see, that's the question. That's the, that's the question. And your job and mine as Christians is to answer that question. Our job is to answer that for the world. So how do we answer it? Well, let me show you by my words. That's what we say. You, if you're asking, who is Jesus? Let me show you by my words. Let me explain to you. Let me tell you. Let me tell you everything I know about Jesus from the Scriptures. And let me just tell you what I know. Because, oh, you know, you and I, we can't explain things like Dr. John MacArthur, let's say. You say, well, oh, I'm, just, I'm just a terrible witness. I can't teach. I can't explain things. I get things all muddled up. I can't remember my verses. And Dr. MacArthur could do that. He could just say them like that. But I, oh, I can't. Well, that's okay. Don't look at MacArthur. Look at, look at John 9. Look at the blind man. And all these religious leaders come to him and they browbeat him. And he says, well, all I can tell you is I was blind. Now I see. And he did it. And they keep browbeating him. And he says, why do you keep asking me? Do, do you want to be his disciple too? And he's, you notice he, he keeps answering them. And he's just telling them what he knows. You're not responsible to tell them what you don't know. You tell them what you know. I, I remember this verse. I did a lot I don't know, but I know this. And I can explain this. And I can tell you that I was once a transgressor and a blasphemer, but he saved me by his grace, and now here I am, and I love him. And so you bear testimony, and you tell him the truth that you know from the Scriptures, and, and maybe you need a little help, and maybe you, you, get, uh, you get that ultimate questions, and you're tired of waiting on me to put it in your hand, and you go get it yourself. And you know, So you, you, you use these tools that God in His grace has supplied us. And so let me show you. Yeah, let me show you by my words. Because, you know, they, sometimes you hear people say, 
that Francis of Assisi said, uh, let's go and preach the gospel and, if necessary, use words. Well, that's just baloney. That's ridiculous. Uh, it's full of words. How's God going to explain salvation? Puts it in a book. So, yeah, you, you need to use words and explain it. So let me show you by my words, and then let me show you by my life. My life will enhance the gospel. That's what Paul says in Titus 2, 1 to 10. He says, now live a godly life and let your life enhance. Let your life adorn the gospel. And you and I, we want to be the, the voice and the hands and the feet of Jesus in this world. And they hear the truth from us. And they see in our lives the reality of the Lord Jesus. Will God use us to further his kingdom, to glorify his name, build his church for his praise? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us and thank you for the privilege of serving you. You've saved us and now we're privileged to serve you. Help us then to be light and salt and useful in the kingdom for the glory of Christ and the saving of souls and the building of the church. Oh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.